chapter 7 tonight, Acts chapter 7, as we continue the message of Stephen as he was preaching. This, uh, I said last week, it's always an interesting thing for me to find uh, messages, sermons in the Bible, because it's, uh, it's kind of my craft, and so I enjoy to see how, how it's done right uh, in the Word of God, and, and Stephen certainly preached a powerful message. We're kind of left in the middle of it last week. We'll finish this off and then see their response as well. Uh, but he's preaching to his accusers. They have accused him of blasphemy. Uh, they've accused him of heresy. And so it, it, he's setting them straight according to the word of God throughout his message uh, in Acts chapter 7. Uh, I mentioned also last week it's a blessing especially to see that this is, Stephen was just a layman. He was not an apostle. He was not a pastor. He was not a missionary. He was just a layman. And yet he made that much of an impact for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you do not have to be of any big position. You don't have to be, uh, have any fancy titles or letters after your name uh, to do great things for God. And so uh, Stephen certainly did. He did not mince words because of who was in the crowd. Uh, in fact, he was very direct with them, as we uh, have already seen and will continue to see tonight. To recap on the first part of Acts chapter 7, uh, he has illustrated how Israel clung to their traditions Rather than to cling to the Lord, uh, he talked about the treatment of their saviors. First, talked about Joseph, then he talked about Moses, and then he paralleled that with how they re reacted to Jesus Christ when he came along. And uh, it's interesting to see how they treated every one of them. Uh, they didn't treat well, just like they didn't treat Jesus well. Now, uh, he is talking about their treatment of the Scriptures. And uh, tonight, rather than read a text, uh, we've got, we're going to work through a lot of verses, so we'll just read these verses as we go tonight. So keep your Bible open. We're going to start in verse number 41 of Acts chapter 7, and uh, we'll just uh, kind of do a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, trip through the rest of the chapter and talk about these things as we go along. Let's open, though, in a word of prayer. Ask God to be with us. So, Lord, we ask you to, to help tonight to, to just give clarity to scriptures. As always, we don't ever want to abuse them but we also want to glean what we can and apply it to our lives to help that to happen tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, he's talking here about the rebellion against the laws that God gave in verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Uh, this was after, in verse 40, they told Aaron to make them gods to go before us uh, for... For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of Moses has been on the mountain. He's receiving the laws of God. And uh, they want gods to go before them. Uh, what a terrible insult that is to Jehovah, who brought them out of Egypt, and now they're putting their faith in things, in uh, false gods. Uh, the sacred bull was one of the countless gods of Egypt. So at the same time that the scriptures were being given to Moses by God's own hand, the Israelites are making a golden calf by their own hand and apostatizing from the true God. They already had the oral scriptures, the Lord working through the patriarchs, their fathers. They knew that Jehovah was the true and living God. They had seen it evidence. What more evidence do you need than walking through the Red Sea with, uh, as it has split and it's, it's stopped up on both sides? You're going across on dry ground. And as soon as you get across, it comes back together on the army chasing you. It doesn't need more, much more evidence for God than that. And they had much more than that even. 
But, and so this great insult to God to make an Egyptian idol and worship it as their deliverer. Absolutely despicable behavior. Look at verse number 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness. Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Molech, and the star of your god Remphan, uh, figures which you made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Uh, Imagine the foolishness of building something with your hands and then worshiping it as your God. That's what they did. Uh, Stephen's revealing here that Israel's idolatries began in the wilderness and it carried all the way into the Babylonian exile. It was a persistent rebellion. The worship of the golden calf, if you look at Israel's history, was officially adopted by Jeroboam uh, as the official religion in, in Babylonian or in the northern kingdom. And uh, then he also mentioned here the uh, worship of Moloch, which is a terrible worship, which included fall, uh, ch- child sacrifice. I've never understood how somebody could sink to that kind of levels. Uh, then Remphan uh, was the worship of planets. This is idolatry that came to them under the influence of Assyria. And so Stephen is showing them how Israel treated the scriptures God gave them. Even while Moses is receiving them, they're down having a a big party to a false god creating this golden calf. Indescribable contempt is how they treated the word of God. In Stephen's day, now jumping forward a few thousand years, in Stephen's day where he's talking here, a lot of lip service was paid to these scriptures. Uh, Schools and synagogues were there. Uh, dedicated to reading and studying the Word of God, but there was a big problem. Tradition had long since replaced the Word of God in priority in these folks' lives. Now, you can use the Bible, and I've seen it done, and you have too, both ways. You can use the Bible to support your belief, or you can use the Bible to form your belief. And there's a big difference. I've heard other religions, false religions, even cults, who use certain parts of the Bible to support their belief system that is written by men, and they'll, they'll pick cherry-pick verses, but they're not forming their beliefs out of the Bible. They're using other people's writings and thoughts uh, to form their own opinions. Uh, even in our own circles, you can take something like Calvinism, and, and uh, a person doesn't become a Calvinist by just reading the Bible. A person becomes a Calvinist by reading books and other people and getting their opinion. And then if you talk to them, what do they use to support it? They use the Bible, but they use only certain parts of the Bible. And so uh, this is uh, something that the, the, they were doing in Stephen's day here. Worthless traditions of the elders had overshadowed the word of God and had made it to no effect. Jesus himself told that to them. And so... The, the, this, this is right along the alley of what S- Stephen's talking about in their treatment of the laws that God gave. They rejected the scriptures, and it led to the nation's most serious crime of all, and that is the murder of Jesus. Now, Stephen goes to his third point now. He's been accused of attacking the temple, so he now shows how Israel, he's seen how they treated their saviors, how they treated their scriptures. Now we're going to look at how, he treated their, how they treated their sanctuaries. Uh, starting with the tabernacle. Our fathers, verse 44, had their tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. 
Now, the tabernacle was an object of great beauty. It, was a, it, was, it came at great cost. It was built to divine specification. The Lord told Moses how to do it. It was God's uh, tent or his dwelling place in the midst of his people. Uh, God, as we know, dwelt uh, there between the cherubim and the mercy seat and the holy of holies. And so, but Stephen's premise here is that the temple, or, I'm sorry, the tabernacle was a temporary structure. Even though it was made to God's instruction, uh, it would be replaced by something better. And nobody at that time could argue the fact because the tabernacle no longer existed when Sp Stephen was speaking. So nobody could argue that. And then he takes it right into the temple. Uh, verse number 46. Who found favor before, talking about David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him an house. Now, David, you remember the story we talked about a few weeks ago, David feeling bad that he's living in, in luxury and wealth and that God uh, has only a tent. He says, should I live in places of fine cedar? And God dwells in, uh, I think he used the word cloth or something like that. But, but, uh, so he said, I want to build God a house. Nathan at first agreed, but then he got a message from God that night that that was not his plan for David. And so he came back to David, and David was not the man to build it. A son of his would arise and build it instead, 2 Samuel chapter 7. By the way, this is an obscure reference to Christ in the spiritual house he'll build, but that's not the main point he's making here. But in due time, David's son Solomon did build a temple in Jerusalem. But Stephen dispelled the idea that Solomon's temple was intended to tie God down. Look at verse number 48. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Uh, Solomon himself recognized this in the dedication prayer when the temple was finished in 1 Kings 8.27. But will God indeed <coughs> dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. What a great attitude. God's not going to be contained in a building, in a place like that. The, the idea that God would be confined to a building is a heathen idea that comes from idols. Idols are in a building, in a temples. They made temples to idols, and that's all they have because they are, that's all they are, is just wood and stone or whatever they're made from. But to think that the eternal God could be limited to one location was ludicrous. Solomon didn't have that concept of God, nor did the prophets. Look at verse number 48. Uh, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples which are made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? What did God have need of a temple? He is the creator of all. Man might need a temple, but God certainly has no need of a temple. Now, in fact, the temple that the Jews were so proud of in Stephen's day wasn't even Solomon's temple anymore. God had allowed that to go up in flames. Within a few weeks, or decades I should say, of the time Stephen is speaking, that one would go up in flames that they had, and so, or be destroyed. So like the tabernacle before it, it was a temporary phase. And Stephen is laying the groundwork for trying to show them uh, you know, what was to come. And it was, these were temporary things, the sanctuaries that God lived in. The same goes, by the way, for this building right here. If this building burns down, Bible Baptist Church is still here. We are the church. God dwells within us, not within a building. Now, it's nice to have a building, isn't it? It's nice to be in a nice place, and, and that's, that's good. That's honoring to the Lord. But this is not 
God's dwelling place, uh, that is uh, ourselves. Uh, so their charge here, that, uh, the, the charge that they gave against Stephen is that he blasphemed by claiming that Jesus was greater than the temple, uh, was very well answered in these verses that we read as he gives that to them. The church is far greater than the temple. Jesus referring to himself in Matthew 12, 6, in this place is one greater than the temple. And so Jesus himself said it. Stephen was not being blasphemous in claiming that. As for the Jews, they were turning the temple into an idol, and that's what Stephen's making clear. Now, he goes, remember they had given him three different accusations of blasphemy, so now he's going to give direct application to each one of these. They had accused him of reviling the holy place. He accused them of resisting the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Not just stop and look at those. Is that inflammatory speech or is that inflammatory speech? <coughs> you, you, I'm a really nice guy compared to that preaching right there. That was vicious to them. Look at what he, you stiff-necked, and what was the, one of their greatest claims of holiness was their circumcision. He calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears. That is uh, some stiff language. But again, preachers that give the word as it is, is a blessing. Uh, there are three ways in which the Holy Spirit can be opposed. He can be grieved, he can be quenched, and he can be resisted. All the, the Bible talks about each one of those. Now, only a spirit-indwelt believer <coughs> can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Uh, the word grieve is a love word. We can only grieve someone who loves us and who stands in a special relationship to us by the definition of that word. Now, a church can quench the Holy Spirit. Speaking to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the Spirit. A church can quench the Spirit by allowing men to usurp His authority. A church can quench the Holy Spirit by, allowing, by refusing to follow His leading. A church can quench the Holy Spirit by permitting false doctrine into its teaching or for sin to take root in that church. Now, as far as resisting, sinners resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen is criticizing his listeners here for their continued opposition to God and their chief sin, he says, is resisting the Holy Spirit. And so we see their treatment of the saviors, the treatment of the scriptures, and the sanctuaries that God had given them capped off by their treatment of the Son of God himself and now their sin against the Holy Ghost. All right, second accusation. They had accused him of slighting Moses, their hero. And was a great man of God. He accused them of slaying Jesus, the Messiah of God. Look at verse number 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they, your fathers. Again, inflammatory. This is, this is stiff language coming from him. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye now have been betrayers and murderers. Stephen's one of those real soft-spoken guys. The prophets that you, your forefathers, uh, persecuted 
foretold of the coming of the one that you've now murdered. That's what Stephen's saying here. We're going to see their reaction a little bit. It's no wonder they're reacting like they're just. This is building. I can just see the crowd as he's talking, and they're just open mouth and agape. Can believe what this man is saying? And as it builds and builds, we'll see it blow in a little bit. <clears throat> but Old Testament prophets, we know they were persecuted. No prophet has ever, no true prophet has ever really been accepted. Jesus talked about that. Much of their ministry involved denouncing people for their sin, for their false religion. And that's not a type of ministry that endears people to you. I can, I can tell you that by personal experience. When you illuminate someone's sin in their life, they usually don't write you a thank you card. They usually, usually people get angry. Sometimes people respond correctly, but uh, this didn't endear people to them. Uh, they, they didn't worry, though, either. If you read the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, they usually didn't worry too much about being diplomatic. As Stephen wasn't here. John the Baptist wasn't a politician in his preaching. They spoke boldly. They spoke bluntly. They dealt with current issues. You know, I, I've, I've been thinking and praying on that a lot in the past few weeks after that, in preparation for last Sunday's message and, and even since then. Um, we don't ever want to be an issue-driven church or have an issue-driven pulpit, but we ought not hide from them either. If you look at the Old Testament, they preached the current issues that were going on and told the truth about them. Uh, persecution, though, they expected in their life. Moses was threatened with stoning by the people. Elijah would have been executed if Jezebel could have caught him. Uh, Isaiah is said to have been put in a hollow tree and sawn asunder. Uh, Jeremiah was stoned to death. Zechariah was martyred between the temple and the altar. Uh, all these crimes against God's messengers were nothing compared with what Stephen charged these folks with, though. He said they had murdered God's son, or as he referred to him, the just one. No crime could be greater, no murder more dreadful than the murdering of the just one. Stephen called the crime of Calvary what it was, murder. This is, uh, he's building up. Let's just say his invitation wasn't a huge success. We'll see that in a minute here. But he's building up to a lot of anger. Now, the third accusation. They had accused him of blaspheming the law. Uh, he accused them of breaking the law. Let's look at verse 30, 53 here. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Moses in Deuteronomy 33.2, The Lord came from Sinai. He shined forth from Mount Pharaoh and he came with 10,000 of saints from his right hand went a fiery law for them. God brought the law down to Moses, given to him by the hand of a mediating angel. Galatians 3.19, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made as it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And so the law was given, and had Stephen blasphemed the law? Not at all. He made that very clear in his message. But they had broken the law. If an accusation was going to be made concerning the law, the, Israel, the Israelite leaders or the spiritual leaders, they're the ones guilty uh, and uh, are the ones that, were, that Stephen is uh, indicting concerning the law. From the very start, they had broken the law. Remember when Moses, he wasn't even off the mountain fully. When they were, he, he, he threw them down and broke the, the tablets of stone because of the wickedness they were involved in. So Israel's whole history had been one long record of law-breaking. 
Now to top it all off, they had taken the very Son of God who was superior to the angel mediators of the Old Covenant. He was the mediator of the New Covenant and they had murdered him. They had accused Stephen of these three things. Stephen came back, uh, answered all of these charges and hit them right between the eyes with the truth. So, now let's look at their response. He says in verse, the end of verse 53, every head bowed, every eye closed, and he's ready to do the raise of hands, but look what happens here in verse 54. Uh, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. They heard Stephen. Their outrage grew and grew during his preaching, and at last, they exploded. You need to picture the scene where there's a bunch of dignified leaders clenching their fists, waving them at him, gnashing their teeth at him, yelling and shouting at him. It was really a scene out of hell. Uh, they were cut, the Bible says, to the heart. The word cut literally means they were sawn asunder. They were infuriated. They were like a pack of wild animals, these dignified spiritual leaders of Israel had completely lost their minds. <clears throat> Look at what happened to Stephen. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looking up steadfastly into heaven, and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing on the right hand of God. While they are attacking him, God is approving of him. What a contrast. And how typical. Can I tell you today, when God approves of you, the world probably won't. When the world approves of you, God probably won't. And because they are uh, opposite of one another. So, the glory of God appeared before him. Heaven itself was opened up for him to see. He saw with his own eyes Jesus standing at God's right hand, by the way, signifying his approval. Just think, in a few moments, Stephen would be there with him, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But first he says one thing here. Look at verse number 56. He gives several Final comments that uh, attest to the Lord Jesus' deity. Let's see what it says here. Verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, <clears throat> the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. No doubt, some people were present right here in this crowd who had been present when Jesus, under oath in front of Caiaphas, had clearly proclaimed his deity. When he was asked... Are you the son of God by Caiaphas? This is what he said. Uh, well, he said he was. And then he added in Mark 14, 62, And ye shall see the Son of Man standing or, or sitting at the right hand of power. Now what does Stephen say? I see the, right, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I, 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 I didn't really notice this until I was in, just preparing for this message. How I believe the the last final words of Stephen were not just ramblings. They were very specific because he was in his death, he was proclaiming the deity of Christ. So that's what he said. He, uh, that uh, Jesus had said, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. And, and then Stephen says, I see him. He is at the right hand of God. I see him, the Son of Man in heaven. By the way, the Son of Man was Jesus' title for himself while he was on earth. So he made clear who he was talking about to these people. Stephen voiced what the Sanhedrin would consider the ultimate blasphemy, not only 
Was he claiming that Jesus was equal with God, but Stephen's putting himself at the throne of the universe, or putting Jesus at the throne of the universe? Jesus was no plain rabbi. Jesus was God, and Peter, or, I mean, Stephen is attesting to it here. So they get even madder. Look at verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. Now, I'm a, a visualizer. I like to visualize. And I can't visualize. I, I just, I, I've not, I've never experienced this. Grown men putting their fingers in their ears, yelling and running and attacking someone. Dignified, grown men. That's how angry they were. They've lost their mind. And so they stopped their ears and ran on him. They had heard enough blasphemy for one day. They put their fingers in their ears and then in mob violence leaped from their seats hoping to get a hand around his neck. Look at verse 58. And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Now that's important because it was Jewish law that the first stones that would be thrown would be the, by the witnesses at the trial of the accused. So if you witnessed against the accused, you were the one who were going to cast the first stone. The purpose for that was that so you would think twice before giving false testimony. You think about, if you were to witness uh, lying about somebody, it would make you think, it would take you back a little bit, if not only would you have to give a false witness, but you're going to have to actually throw stones at this person you know is innocent, if you're a false witness. Which these people were, remember they were purchased. They had just, they had bought their witness. So not only did they lie at the trial, they're going to have to throw the first stones, and the Bible says the witnesses here uh, laid their coats down. As usual, Jewish custom made a big deal about procedure. That's what religions do. Everything has got to be all procedure. So arriving, uh, before arriving at the site where they would do the stoning, the condemned was given a chance to confess. This is, I'm not saying this happened with Stephen. This is their normal procedure. Would give it, be given a chance to confess and make their peace with God. When they reached their site, which was actually 10 or 12 foot cliff of the actual place of death, one of the witnesses would shove him over the edge. It was hoped that the fall itself would kill him. If it would not kill the accused, he would be turned over on his back, and one of the, another witness would then throw a stone at him. And if he survived that, then the congregation would join in the stoning. I don't believe that we see in this uh, account today that that kind of formality was <laughs> observed on this day. They were insane, full of anger. The Bible says they cast him out of the city. He was pushed and shoved to the place of execution. They tore off their coats so they would not be hampered uh, to throw rocks and end his life and finally shut him up from speaking. But then in the middle of all this, the Bible stops the narrative and interjects a fact. Look what it says. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. There was in, this is hard to believe, I love the grace of God. There's in the mob a young man who would be Stephen's predecessor. It was a young man who would follow in the footsteps of Stephen. Uh, nobody knew it yet. He did not know it himself yet. 
But God had his finger on this young man. His name was Saul. He comes from Tarsus. He was absolutely brilliant. And it was probably, uh, I'm presuming that this young rabbi attended the synagogue, spoke about in chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, it was probable that he stood there and argued with Stephen when Stephen was defending the cause of Christ. Presumably, he himself was, uh, got involved in the arguments. He was, he was a very well-spoken, a brilliant young uh, theologian. Not that he is... I, then, then he had to listen to Stephen's words as he argued with him, probably losing the argument as we've seen with many of them. But he's not convinced Stephen's right. Oh no, not yet. That'll happen in a few chapters. He's furious with these Jesus followers. Saul saw clearly that, that Christianity posed a tremendous threat to Judaism as they knew it. Because tr Christianity, if it was true, abolished Judaism... And he could not let that happen. Later he would teach this truth as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But I, I think it's interesting. It just gives you that little interjection. Because as I mentioned, throughout the whole chapter of seven, uh, chapter 7, I, I have to think, <coughs> Paul's listening to everything that's being said here. Uh, Saul, at that time. And we know, according to Acts chapter 9, that Saul was under conviction. Because uh, Jesus mentioned the pricks that he was kicking against. So... Uh, we know that there was conviction in his heart. Verse 59. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Still, in the very last utterances that he had, he's proclaiming the deity of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23, 46. When Stephen died... Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's professing that Jesus, again, is equal with the Father. Stephen was on the verge of departing this life. He must have spoken words right there that Saul never forgot in his life because later Paul took these words and wrote one of the great doctrines of our faith that death for a Christian meant to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. What an impact. Stephen had. Verse 60. He's not done yet. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's last words were a testament of Christian grace. His last words were an echo of the Lord's words on the cross, Jesus' words. It was a great demonstration of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.44. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Also, it was one last profession of the deity of Jesus. Because who can forgive sin? Only God. And so, uh, he, in saying what he said, lay not this sin to their charge. Then the Bible says, he fell asleep. Rocks are flying all about him, but you see in his heart and mind a scene of peace. It's a reminder for us that no matter the troubles and the trials in our life, we can have an inner peace. And we see that even in Stephen's life as it ended. Finally, presumably a stone hit a vital spot and ended his life here on earth. And it ended Stephen's life, but it was the beginning of so much more. And it's about this time that the book of Acts gets really exciting <coughs> with the life uh, uh, and times of Saul being converted, and so 
you come back next week and we'll continue to discuss that uh, as uh, the Lord will be do a tremendous work and continue to do that in Saul's life. One of the things that I took from this message is that Stephen, being found faithful, doing what he did, preaching the word, doing what he was supposed to do, he had no idea the impact he was having on someone in the crowd. We have no idea of the impact we have on people that watch us, whether it be children, grandchildren, uh, uh, protégés, mentor, mentees, or whatever it is, people that we're working with, students, whatever it is. We can have a tremendous impact on people, and we might never know it. But if we're found faithful, God will use that faithfulness, and he will, all we need to do is plant it. He'll bring up a plant, uh, and he'll bring up the fruit of it. So a uh, great blessing of Stephen's life. Very short scene we have into his life, but what an impact he made. Father.